Well, church family, we are back in Philippians today. It's taken us about uh, six months when you calculate uh, all of the Sundays that we've, we've diverted and gone elsewhere for Christmas or Easter or uh, various things, and, uh, which means it's taken us about as long to get through Philippians as it would have taken us if we were really fast to go from Philippi to Rome and Paul and back with no stay. So it's, I think we've done an exceedingly thorough biblical job here. We, we'll be in Philippians today and next week. And I want to remind us, because we've had a couple, weeks, uh, a couple weeks away from Philippians, where we've been. Paul's there in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest. So he is having to lease, uh, lease a dwelling in which to be imprisoned chained to a Praetorian guard day in and day out, able to receive visitors. He's there in Rome. He's been there for likely two years, prior to which he was shipwrecked and imprisoned two more years in Caesarea Maritime there in the Holy Land in Israel on the coast. He finds himself in, in, in Rome. The, the church in Philippi has heard of his need. They have taken together a collection and sent him a gift, and, not, and, and they've sent it uh, with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus has shown up. You and I can imagine that moment where there's a knock on the door. I'm going to just assume that the guard answers the door, and in walks in Epaphroditus, and the joy that must have leapt through Paul's spirit. Because this church in Philippi is unique among all the churches that we know of uh, that Paul planted, of, of all the churches that Paul has relationship. Paul says there in chapter 1 that this church in Philippi, they are partakers. They were not simply content to just learn from Paul and receive from Paul, but they have an, engaged in ministry with Paul. They have been on the front lines of fighting the war of eternity, of sharing the gospel with Paul. They have been right by Paul's side taking care of Paul as Paul has gone on, not because Paul asked, but out of their hearts. And so Paul writes them this letter where in chapter 1 he, he, he stirs them on and paints this picture calling them and calling us to be a gospel-driven church, a church that is driven by the mission of God to see the gospel of Christ preached to every man, woman, boy, and girl. He moves into chapter 2, and he, he, he begins to bring the example of Christ and the humility of Christ, and he calls the Philippian church, as well as us, to walk and live and move and breathe in, in humility that matches that of Christ to being fully God, stepped down out of heaven, exalted in glory, and came to this broken and battered and tattered world. He took on full humanity He served and ultimately in humility went to death, death on a cross that as we looked at for the last several weeks, that death on the cross was far more than just a, a physically painful death. It was a death in which he received what you and I rightly deserve. And out of this humility, he calls us to take seriously our salvation. He, he calls us to minister to one another, to hold people like Epaphroditus who risked their life to care for the saints in high regard. He moves into chapter 3 and begins answering some questions the church in Philippi has about those who would preach a, a righteousness based on the works of the flesh rather than that which is found in Christ through faith in Christ. And, and Paul says, this is my overwhelming aim is to know him. And he talks about standing firm then, and he moves into chapter 4 and, and looks at what is it going to mean to be a church that stands firm. And he addresses there in Philippi some petty squabbles that are taking place but, but causing division. He addresses how to handle anxiety, how to think, and he finally gets to the end 
to really address one of the main reasons he wrote the letter, which is to say thank you. Church in Philippi has sent him, not just Epaphroditus, but they have sent him a gift, a financial gift. There was money. It could possibly be that there were other goods and materials. And, and remember, Paul's having to pay to live, but he's imprisoned, which means he can do no work to pay to live. And so their gift is important, but Paul wants to make clear because some things aren't any different today than they were in Paul's day. You see, you and I, there's kind of two different perceptions when all of a sudden the preacher's got to get up and talk about giving and generosity, and, and there is because we've lived in the day of the televangelist. We've lived in the day of the smooth-talking, slick-backed, fine-dressing preacher man getting up and using and often many times distorting God's Word to pull in as, as many checks as possible. And so there's some who... And then this caricature appears that all the church talks about is money. Then there's the other side. And there is another side. I grew up in a church where the pastor pastored 33 years, and by his count, only nine sermons in 33 years ever addressed the issue of money because of how much that caricature has damaged the church. And Paul seems to have the same thing. We saw this three weeks ago. He can't just say thank you for the gift because he wants to be clear to the church in Philippi that his love and affection and appreciation for them is not based on what they can do for him. That he can, in fact, be content in all things because in Christ he is able to endure all things. But he also is grateful, and he's going to address that today for their generosity. So I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to pick up back in verse 14. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. And I know it's a, a long intro to get in, but it's important we understand this because there is a tension in Paul. Paul is extremely appreciative, but he wants to be clear to the church in Philippi that his affection and gratitude for them is not just for what they can do. And they've done a lot. So look with me at verse 14. Having said he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, he says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. This is quite literally Paul's way of saying, nevertheless, thank you. You have done well. You have done satisfactory. You have done excellently. You have done right to share with me in my affliction. By sending this gift, by, by being prompted to, to take care of me, you have done well, and it's not just that you've done well, but you have shared. You have, you have engaged in a common fellowship with me in my affliction, in my suffering, in my hardship. It says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that after, I, after the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. He says, you know Philippians, and it's interesting, you and I don't catch anything by him using the term Philippians, but in fact, he uses there in his writing a Latin term, not a Greek term. He uses the term that they would have referred to themselves in everyday speech being that colony of Rome rather than the proper Greek name. What he's doing here is a very personal, intimate way of saying, you yourselves know, Philippians, my friends, you know 
That after the first preaching of the gospel, after I came in and preached the gospel and, and people responded, we find this in Acts chapter 16. Philippi is the first place that Paul goes after the Macedonian vision when God says, no, you can't go into Asia and says you must go into Europe. When Paul goes, Philippi is the first place he ends up. There's no synagogue because there's not many Jews. He goes down to the river, finds, finds some people willing to hear, several respond to Christ, and the church is started. But it causes ripples and waves. And soon Paul and Silas find themselves beaten and thrown in prison, both of which are inappropriate for Roman citizens. There's that earthquake in the jail. The Philippian jailer's worried everybody leaves, but they're all there. He and his family come to faith in Christ. And when the governing authorities hear that Paul is a Roman citizen and they've beaten and imprisoned him, they, they beg his forgiveness and say, just please leave. He says, you know, Philippians, that after I came and shared the gospel and respond, even after I went to the next city, to Thessalonica, multiple times you sent a gift and there was no other church, no other church that engaged in giving and receiving. No other church had a mutual relationship where, where they were giving and I was receiving, where I was giving, where they were receiving. No one else shared a similar word to the, the, the word share earlier. Again, the idea of this mutual participation. No one was a partner with me except you. And you weren't a partner with me once. He mentions multiple times. So I want you, I want you to kind of leave a finger here. We're going to refer to it a couple times. If you go a couple books to the left to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This helps put us and understand more the church in Philippi and the nature of their generosity. Paul's writing the church in Corinth here, and he's writing them about an offering, a love offering to help the church in Jerusalem facing famine. And he says in chapter 8, verse 1, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Now, brethren, we, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know how God's grace has moved and stirred the churches there in Macedonia, of which Philippi is a part. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves to the Lord first and to us by the will of God. Here's what Paul says. He says, I want you to be aware of these churches in Macedonia they're under intense affliction. They are facing persecution. They are not wealthy. They are not rich. In fact, we would describe them from a worldly standpoint as, as being in poverty. We didn't reach out to them. We didn't go and ask them to be willing to give. No, in fact, they heard about it. They came to us, and the language is they begged, they beseeched, they hungered, they wanted out of the overwhelming affliction and poverty of their situation, they wanted to give something. They wanted to be a part in what God is doing. And not only did they give something, but they gave beyond what anyone could ever dream. But it's because they first gave themselves to the Lord. There is this work of God there in the church in Philippi that has moved and stirred their hearts to regardless of their poverty, regardless of their affliction, where they give of themselves generously, where they, they give passionately, where they want to, where they give because God 
is stirring their hearts. Look what he says. He says, for you know you've given more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself. He wants to be clear. He said, listen, you've given, but understand, church in Philippi, not that, not that I'm trying to get stuff from you, but what I am seeking, what I am always seeking, is the fruit, the profit, which increases to your account. He says, what I am always seeking hasn't changed. I'm not seeking the ways you can support me. I'm not in this relationship with you for what you can give to me. I'm seeking the same thing I'm always seeking, which is the fruit of salvation in your life, which is credited to your account that the Lord judges when you stand before him. Put another way, maybe put in a way that's a little bit of an old phrase. He goes, I'm seeking, my hope, my desire is for your crown to have more jewels. He says, but I've received everything, everything you've given. This is my official statement. I've received it in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. He says, church, Philippi, I got it. And it's it's not just that I got it, but man, you have you have." You have given me in an abundance. And he says, and what you have sent, it's a fragrant aroma. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It's well-pleasing to God. He uses old sacrificial imagery of the incense offering, coming up to God and, and being pleasing, a pleasing smell to the Lord, he, he, of, of a sacrifice that delights the Lord. He says, church in Philippi, make no mistake, what you have given, it delights the heart of God. And speaking of God, he says, and my God, he will supply all your needs, the needs you face facing persecution, church in Philippi, the needs you face in your poverty, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches. By the way, what are his riches? They're unbound. There is no end to his riches. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul's saying is, church in Philippi, your offering is well-pleasing to God. I have no ability to repay it. There's, in fact, nothing really I can do for you at the moment. But my God, my God is able to supply abundantly from the riches of his glory all your needs, that which is truly a need. Now notice, he doesn't say all your wants. He doesn't say all your dreams. He doesn't say all your desires. But he says all your needs that which in fact is necessary but lacking, my God is more than able to abundantly supply. And may he be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul, Paul wants to show his gratitude, but he also wants to be clear with the church in Philippi that what he's really, his heart for them is that they know the Lord well, that they walk with the Lord well, that God is pleased and delighting in them, and that they understand and that they know the supply of God for their life, for their needs, beyond anything. Church family, if we're going to be an unwavering church, if we're going to, in fact, stand firm in, in a day and time when, when the winds blow every direction, to be an unwavering church means we must be a church that out of a genuine affection for the body of Christ... We prove to be generous and faithful stewards 
of all that God has entrusted to us for the purpose of the ministry of the gospel and the support of the, support of the saints because our God is the abundant giver who supplies all needs. See, church family, if we're going to be an unwavering church, we, out of genuine affection, need to be partakers in the ministry of the gospel and the support of the saints. There is a genuine passion in the Philippians' hearts to be engaged in a mutual relationship of ministry with Paul, and vice versa, Paul for them. And Paul makes it clear his affection for them is not because of what they can do. Church family, there should be an affection in our hearts for each other as a, as a local church. There should be an affection in our hearts for other believers that we're part of. Think other like-minded churches in our city, other like-minded churches in our state, in our country, in our world. There should be a hunger in this affection uh, to, to be engaged in ministry, but that hunger and affection should never be about what you and I can get from one another. Amen. Doesn't mean that we don't serve one another. Doesn't mean that we don't get stuff from one another. But it means it cannot be an affection. An affection that's based off of what you can do for me is in fact not an affection. It's just self-centered. And this affection, what, what should it be? It should be an affection that flows out of who God is within us. We'll see more of that in a second. It should be an affection that drives us to be engaged. What I mean by ministry of the gospel is engaged in ministry where the gospel is going forward and being proclaimed, where disciples are being made and grown to go and make other disciples as well as support of the saints. Because inside the household of faith, there are real needs. There are real things that need to be addressed and taken care of, there should be a genuine affection in our hearts for each other in ministry and support. And that genuine affection, church family, should then drive us to be sharers, partners, partakers, fellowshipping in this through generous and faithful stewardship, through general and faithful, faithful stewardship, church family. You see, here's the reality. What Paul points out is, in our lives as believers, the generosity and faithfulness with which we steward the possessions of our lives, and by possessions I mean holistically, I don't just mean money, the possession of time that we have, the possession of skills and talents, the possession of spiritual gift, the, sp the possession of, of other means, It is an important and key part of our sanctification, of God's salvation being worked out in and through our lives that you and I become generous and faithful stewards. So you understand, if you read the Gospels, Jesus certainly did not shy away from addressing the way in which we use our time, our gifts, our talents, and yes, even our money. Paul addresses here, he says, look, the thing that I am seeking is the thing I'm always seeking. I'm seeking the increase to your account. I am seeking your growth in Christ. I am seeking that when you stand before Jesus one day and your life as a believer is laid on the altar, you're not being judged for whether you will go into heaven or, or not. That, that was taken care of in the blood of Christ at the moment of salvation. No. What is being evaluated, 1 Corinthians 3, what is being evaluated is how faithful you and I followed Christ by his grace and the power of God living within us. And there will be an evaluation that there is some form of reward and loss for that 
Though it doesn't take heaven or seeing Jesus or anything there, there's, there's some form of reward for faithfulness. Paul says, that's what I seek. Paul's addressing. We know from Scripture that where what we do with our time, what we do with ourselves, what we do with our resources, what we do with our wealth, where our treasures are reveals where our heart is. Why Paul is concerned about it. You see, generous and, and faithful stewardship are a part of, of our salvation being worked out within us. And understand, the manner in which we offer our offerings is either pleasing or displeasing to the Lord. There's the it's like the greatest, uh, it's, it's one, of the, uh, the, one of my favorite Bible stories to teach to students because you don't ever hear anybody teach it, and it's quite shocking. It's there in Acts chapter 5 where people out of a response to the Lord are, are giving in just abundance and sharing with one another and taking care of one another, and you've got this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they, they sell a plot of land, but they say they sell it for a different amount than they did. But they say they gave everything they sold it for, and so Ananias comes in and gives the offering before, the, before Peter, and Peter says, why'd you lie to God? Why'd you lie to the Holy Spirit? Boom, he drops dead. I don't know who it was. Maybe it was the deacons. They came in, they grab the body, they go out, they dig the hole, they bury the body, and right as they finish burying the body, his wife comes in, and he asks her the same question. Boom, she falls down dead. They come in and do the same with her, and here's the ultimate point, and, and, and the fear of the Lord spread among the people, but part of what's there is this, God is far less concerned with what the amount and the numbers add up to, he is far more concerned with the spirit in which we give and are faithful. It matters to God, which is why Christ is much more pleased in the widow's might, giving faithfully and sacrificially out of nothing than out of the person who can flash the great big check because they're going to get their name on the building and that's the only thing driving them. God delights or dislikes. He says, he says about the church in Philippi that they're offering what they gave. It was well-pleasing to God, implying there could have been a manner in which they gave that was not pleasing to God. Our heart, the heart behind our generosity and our faithfulness matters to God. We understand that, that in, in being faithful and generous, there is a reward there. God honors and rewards. It may not be this side of heaven, but God honors and rewards for all eternity to you and I's faithfulness, and that includes our faithfulness with our resources. Now, what do we mean? I, I mentioned earlier, what do we mean by our resources? What are, we what are we generous and faithful with? Our time. Our time. Church family, ministry is never convenient or efficient because ministry is about people. People are broken, people are hurting, people are suffering, people have need. If ministry is about efficiency, then we're just going to mark everybody off after a little 15-minute quick fix. No, ministry takes time. It takes time to minister to people. It took time for the church in Philippi to come up with the offering. It took time for the church in Philippi to pray through the offering. It took time. I mean, take Epaphroditus. He's probably been gone for eight or nine months. It takes time. And you and I live in a day and age where there's 800,000 things clamoring for our time, where everyone's saying, I don't have enough time. So how are we stewarding our time? 
Is there any part of our time that's given to sharing in the ministry of the gospel and the support of the saints? Our time, our presence, and this is closely related. Ministry doesn't happen when we choose to just check out. There is a need to be physically present, to be engaged, to be hands and feet. It's not enough for the Philippians to just put an offering together and send money. No, that wasn't enough for them. They sent flesh and blood to encourage, to build up, to breathe life into Paul as we, as we remember back in, in Philippians 2. But it's not just our presence, it's our skills and our spiritual gift. We have skills and talents and things that God has, has allowed us to be good at. Are we employing those in the, youth, the, the use of ministry? We have spiritual gifts, gifts and talents, or talents and skills we were given at birth, spiritual gifts we were given at new birth, spiritual gifts we have for the specific purpose of building up and caring for the body of Christ. And if we're not using them at all in ministry, then we are literally wasting the generosity of God. How do I know my spiritual gift? Let me give you the foolproof way. There are such things as spiritual gift tests, and I'm not knocking them. The foolproof way is to ask the Lord, what's my spiritual gift, and go try to start serving. Because they didn't have spiritual gift tests back in the first century. Cost a lot of money to put papyrus together. Speaking of that, it does mean being faithful with our finances. Here's the reality. A lot of ministry, like everything else, it does require money because we live in a world that functions on economy. Man, that person needs a Bible. You're right. And you know what? It costs money to get a Bible because it costs money to print that Bible because it costs money to translate that Bible. It does take money. It's why you see, we, we typically, historically in the church, we've spoken of two categories of financial giving, tithes and offerings. Tithes, historically, uh, we, we've used 10% as a baseline number, not because of the Old Testament law, but more out of the example of Abraham with Melchizedek. If you go back in church history, 10% is, 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 a, is a great baseline. It's a great starting point, a great aim. But what we do see clearly in Scripture in the New Testament is the call is not so much to a percentage as it is to be faithful and consistent and generous. Tithes, offerings would be those things beyond 10% and outside of the local church. I want to be clear, church family, clear as we apply this today. In no way am I in any way indicating that if you spend time, skills, or money on yourself, like I am not trying to guilt or shame anyone, nor am I trying to twist and, man, I really am looking forward tomorrow to see what the offering amount is today. That's not the heart. In fact, if, if we weren't in Philippi and this wasn't the next passage, we wouldn't be talking about it today. But we're in Philippians, and, and here's the next passage, and this is why we walk verse by verse, because it forces us to address things. We need to understand, church family, that we have to set the example for generous and faithful giving. And I don't know if other people's was like this, but when I, even when I was little, the first time I ever got an allowance as a little boy, there was an offering jar to learn to set aside a percentage of that. And in my family, it was 10%. In light of the example of Abraham, I remember even going beyond that when I got my first grown-up job and had a real paycheck and I'd never seen that amount of money and I was trying to do all the math and get down to 10% and I was doing all the decimals and, and my mom made this comment. She said, Wes, she said, God has been so gracious and generous with us. Don't be stingy. 
If nothing else, just round it up. And her point wasn't to say, if you literally, if, if someone in here is a diehard math person and you take it out to the, I'm not knocking that. My mom's point to me was she could tell that all of a sudden there was an air of stinginess there that needed to be addressed to say, God is generous, just be faithful to give. But understand, the reason those things were in my life is because I had parents who modeled and showed and discipled. And so mom and dad in this room, if we don't teach that to our kids, we shouldn't be surprised when our kids grow up and don't value it. Likewise, this, giving of our time, our skills, our presence, our, our finances, giving, we need to understand that giving generally and faithfully will at times hurt. The language of sacrifice is in the text. There are times when giving will be given out of abundance. There will be times in our lives where giving will be out of poverty. There will be times when to be faithful to serve in that ministry and to give that time is a real sacrifice on our part because we don't have a lot of spare time. There will be time when to write that check to be faithful to give might mean sacrificing going to Disney World that month. At times, it will cost. There is sacrifice that is involved. But understand, what are we being faithful to give to? It's the ministry of the gospel and the support of the saints. I mean, did you know, church family, that you paid for me to go to seminary? That was a long time ago. Not really. It was about seven, eight years ago. Long's relative. You paid for me to go to seminary. How did we pay you to go to seminary, pastor? We didn't even know you existed. Now you didn't know we existed. Yeah, that's true. But at Southern Baptist Church, when we give, when you give in your offering, we elect in our budget to give a percentage of that to what we call the cooperative program. Because in the Southern Baptist Convention, there's this belief that any one of us can't do a whole lot, but all of us can do a whole lot. And so when you give money to that, part of that money goes to the seminaries to knock tuition and give every Southern Baptist student a 50% scholarship. You help pay by your faithfulness for my seminary. You help pay for a student to come to Christ in Seattle on a mission trip three years ago. When I led a group of college students from A&M and we met a student from another country where preaching the gospel has been outlawed legally, and that student was there at the University of Washington, and, and we engaged in relationships some students shared, and this student came to faith in Christ. You know why? You help pay a part in that because part of the money we give goes to North American Mission Board to send money to church planners whom we were working with there in Seattle, just north of the University of Washington, where that student then went and became a member and, and being discipled. When we give money to Lottie Moon, it goes to encourage missionaries, food pantry. There's a lot of ways. It's not just financially, though. We give with our time. It hit me one day like a lightning bolt there as a youth pastor. I had 100 and 150, 160 students sitting in that room. And I realized there is no possible way if I could give one hour to every single one of those students every week for the sake of Christ, there's not enough time in the week. It can't be all me who does this. There's got to be others. There's got to be other people, other people God has called to engage and disciple and to move and to breathe. What are we sacrificing for? What are we giving out of abundance or poverty for? It's for nothing short of the ministry of the gospel. To see disciples made. And let me just give you some imagining here, okay? There's, there's this ratio we call the 80-20 ratio. And it plays out both in, in service and in giving. And it's this. It's, it's long time in ministry world. 80% of the volunteers, of the volunteering done in your church comes from 20% of the people. 
80% of the budget given in your church comes from 20% of the people. As time has moved forward in the 21st century, really those are actually lower. It's about 15 to 17% of the people who do 80 to 85% of the serving and the giving because we have become so consumed by our consumeristic culture where our affection for even our church is what the church can give and offer to me and what I can take. And so let me pull in, get my spiritual fix, and pull back out into my normal everyday routine. But can you imagine with me for a second? Think about our kids' ministry. I've heard from many of our kids' volunteers that we don't have enough people helping to disciple our kids. By the way, if you really want to be effective in discipleship, you need about a one to three person ratio. You know what that means? That means if you have 90 kids, you better have at least a minimum of 30 volunteers. That means something like Awana's on Sunday nights where there's over 150 kids. There needs to be over 50 volunteers. And I've heard for many, it seems that it's just, we kind of, re- and this is not true for us, it's true everywhere. And typically in ministries, we just recycle the same weary, tired volunteers. It's why the people who serve in the nursery never get to come to worship at every church you look at. Because people have not said, I will sacrifice of my time to go through the training, to go through, to go through what I need to do to prepare it. And, and man, if we all pitched in and everybody took a Sunday, then no one would have to always miss worshiping with their church family. If every person that God stirred their heart would go through the training to know how to disciple, who knows how many students that, and children, that no one single minister can ever reach thoroughly, but who knows if God made you to reach that person. Or let's take financially. Now understand, I'm going to use some percentages here that I, I have no clue what the percentages are for our church, all right? So that's like ultimate no manipulation here. But I was at a church where I saw that one time, we, we didn't see who gave what or this or that, but we saw what percentage of the church actually gave consistently month in and month out. And it was about 17% of the church did about 83% of the giving. So I'm, just, I'm taking that from a, a prior church years and years ago. We have a $2.1 million budget, church family. And if 17% gives 83%, that means 17% of our church family gives about $1.7 million dollars. But could you imagine if 34% gave? We'd have an almost $4 million budget. If almost, if 51%, if we tripled it, it'd be a near $6 million budget. If we quadrupled it, 68% gave 83, then it would be a $7.5 million budget. If we flipped it completely on top and said, what if, what if 85% started giving 83% of the budget? It would be a near $10 million budget. Now dream with me for a second. Your long time, $10 million, any remaining debt's gone. Dream with me, though. What could you imagine? What could, what could our student ministry do with a $100,000 budget to reach students in Pflugerville? What could our kids do with the same? What, what could, we could go down and go, you know what? Here is a neighborhood right by the church that we want to do everything we can to make sure everybody within a mile radius of the church has heard the gospel. We want to throw block parties. We want to put people on the street. We want to do, and you know what? We're going to put $2 million a year towards it. We'd still have $8 million left. Oh, and here's a family that that has just had a hard rock in life and in need of a lot of financial help. You know what we're going to set up? We're going to have a ministry where we can train them on, on, on financial practices. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to give a one-time $100,000 gift that will forever change their lives. Oh, easy, done. 
You know what, we've got all sorts, we, we want every one of our students to go on a mission trip to somewhere overseas and man, it's really pricey. Oh wait, we can, we can now take 50 of our students every year overseas and completely underwrite the entire cost. Now listen, your family, I give you those dreams and imagines. I am not at all trying to stump that you write a bigger check. I wanna be clear. What I am saying is there is this ratio in American church life for a reason because it proves true at most churches. And when we look at what the passage says, if we were to give of our time, give of our resources, give of our skills, our talents, our finances, if we were to be generous and faithful, what could God do? Not that he needs us, he doesn't, but he calls us to be faithful. And ultimately, here's the reason we're faithful. Did you see back in the text? There should be an affection that drives us in the ministry of the gospel and support of the saints. It should drive us to be faithful and generous in our, in our stewardship of the resources that God has, has entrusted to us, but it's all flowing out of the fact that God is the ultimate giver. And my God will supply all your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. Church family, as we come out of Easter weekend and, and everything, not one of us will ever with our lives be able to outgive God. Not one of us. The very definition of God's love, we're gonna look at it Wednesday night, to say God is love is to say that God is eternally giving himself. The definition of God's love is that he gives himself. For God so what? Loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only son. He sent his only son, the most valuable relationship, the most precious of all love between father and son and spirit and the triune Godhead. He sent his only son. And what did he send his son to do? Back in, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, it makes this statement. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake become, became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Not rich with financial gain, not rich with, with acclaim, not rich with, but rich in terms of you and I were by nature dead and in a place where we were enemies of God and Jesus Christ came and took every last drop of the punishment you and I deserve that any of us who have responded in repentance and faith will be saved by his grace, reconciled to God, seated at the table in Christ Jesus, sons and daughters of the King. What it cost God to give his son, you and I will never know if you're in Christ because we'll never drink a drop of it. It says that God generously gives the Holy Spirit to any who would ask. That's why at the moment of salvation, you don't get part of the Holy Spirit, you have all the Holy Spirit living inside of you, sealing you. It says in Hebrews 4 that God gives grace and mercy in time of need to the one who asks. Wisdom, James 1, to the one who trusts because God is generous. It says in Ephesians 1 that he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It says in Ephesians 2, but, but God being rich in his mercy, understand the very nature and character of who our God is, is to be a generous and abundant and faithful giver of himself, which is why we can never outgive God. Instead, if we understand God's character, if we understand that he's a generous giver, that he meets all of our needs, and again, not our wish list, not our dreams, not our desires, but our needs, that which is necessary but lacking. Needs, not just physical, but spiritual and eternal. 
He supplies all our needs. It says in Psalm 84, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly with integrity, which means, church family, if we are walking rightly with God and there is something in our life that we seem to lack, we can trust that it's either not a good thing or it's not the right time because God is not a stingy God who holds back his goodness from his people. But at the same time, God and his generosity doesn't exempt us from hardship. Isn't it interesting that the church in Philippi, God didn't change the situation of their persecution or the situation of their poverty. Instead, what he did is he changed their hearts so that in the midst of both, they would look and act like Christ and be generous with their time, their resources, and on and on. And because God is the good giver from abundant riches, you and I can find the power and strength to break the spirit of the day me, myself, and I in keeping up with the Joneses. Because God is the good giver from abundant riches, church family, you and I are enabled to give freely and cheerfully and generously, whether it's from abundance or poverty, because we begin by the power of the Holy Spirit and his transformation in us. We begin to think like the Lord thinks, humbly, in love, How can I serve? How can I give? How can I respond? It means when there's that deep longing in my life as a single person, and I'm I'm longing for that good thing of marriage, but it's not there, it means rather than being crippled by it, the longing doesn't go away, but God can empower me to use my time and life as a single person for his glory. It means fill in the blank. What's another need? What's something that you're, you're, you're... You're craving and longing. It means that by the power of God, because he is the good giver and he transforms us, we can be different. Because ultimately, church family, look what it says in the text. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church family, ultimately, we are called to be generous and faithful because it is about God. It's not about us. It's not about our retirement account. It's not about what all cool things we got to do with our time. My, my generation, the generation below, I saw this, this thing the other day. We don't care about how nice our house is. We don't care about how nice our clothes are. We just want awesome experiences with our time. And it's like all these pictures of standing on beautiful mountains and valleys and all this and traveling and living out of a camper. I don't care what is the end goal. And I'm not, even, I'm not, I'm not criticizing a 401k. The word, God's not criticizing that either. What I am saying is church family, our lives, our time, our person, our skills and talents, our spiritual gifts, the finances the Lord entrusts to us, they are all for the glory of God. What does God want to do? So even in my own life, church family, as I walk away studying this passage all actually for the last three weeks, My prayer is, Lord, show me. Open my eyes where I'm not generous. Open my eyes where I'm not faithful. Open my eyes and find open hands and willing feet. Church family, may that be all of our prayer. And as the Holy Spirit leads, may we respond. That's the ultimate call today. As the Holy Spirit leads, may we respond. Let's pray. Father, Lord, it is a tough text. It's a tough text because it, it, in some ways there's not any one of us who is exempt from some aspect of our life really holding tight. Lord, it's, it's a, it's a um, hard text, Lord, 
because there has been there has been abuse in so many places when we talk about time or, or money. There's been manipulation tactics, and Lord, I just you know I've prayed so hard. I don't want anybody feeling guilted, manipulated. That is not the point. God, the point is you are God. It is all about you. There is ministry that you desire to do, and that ministry doesn't happen magically because we just sit and, and do our own things. Lord, you call us to be a part of that ministry. God, in your work done your way for your glory will never lack your power and your means to accomplish it. So Father, my prayer for all of us is that we would just be simply faithful. That Holy Spirit, if there's a place you convict us, that we would be willing to respond, that we would hold loosely our time, our person, our skills, our talents, our, our spiritual gifts, our, our, our finances, that we would just hold it loosely and we would lay it all down on the altar of your glory, that we would enjoy what you give us to enjoy and that we would be faithful to, to give and serve in the way that you call us to give and serve. So Father, as we move in this time of invitation, may you be worshiped, may you be glorified, and may you find us willing to respond. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.